I'm really grateful to uh, John and Joshua to have the opportunity to preach to you. Uh, and I'm really, really excited. My wife, Joanne, and I are really excited to be here with you for a couple different reasons. One of them is that we haven't gathered with, to, with believers to worship corporately since early March, uh, except for one other time in Knoxville with a small church there as well. And, and we certainly haven't taken the Lord's Supper since, I think, February. So it's, we're ex- so excited to be here with you for that reason, but also because we love church plants. We love brand new churches. Joanne and I, over our years, you probably were adding up all those stretches of time, and you're like, hey, they're pretty old, actually. Not as old as they look, but um, we, we love to start new things and to pioneer new things, new works of God. And uh, we have been praying for you all. Uh, we've kind of had Midtown Baptist Church on our radar for a while uh, and been praying for you all to lean in to what God is doing in your midst and through you with this new church and uh, praying that um, it's a new season for each and every one of you to learn new things about trusting God and about what God can do through believers when they come together and covenant with one another in a local church to proclaim the gospel. So we're praying that God would give you increase uh, in in terms of your own growth in the gospel and give you increase as well, of course, numerically, but praying that God would glorify himself through you in this particular season when you're beginning the church. Very, very exciting for us. I want to tell you just a little bit about the United Arab Emirates. You might not have heard of it. Uh, or know exactly where it was. When I told Joanne back in the year 2000 that I wanted to take her to the United Arab Emirates, she said, where is that? Um, and then it took a while for us to make a decision to go because she wasn't wild about that at first. But she got on board. Uh, the UAE is on the Arabian Peninsula and we, are, we border Saudi Arabia and across the water, the Gulf, uh, the Arabian Gulf or the Persian Gulf, from Iran. So it's kind of a rough neighborhood, um, interesting neighborhood. And one of the really fascinating things about Dubai and the UAE in general is that only 10% of the population are the citizens. Only 10%. The other 9 out of 10 people who live there are from other countries. They're expatriates. And they're from so many different countries. And so this place, although it is an Arab country, Arabic is the official language, Islam is the official religion. Um, There are people from so many different countries there. Uh, Lots of, in fact, Indians make up the largest percentage nationality there, and so there's a huge Hindu population there as well. So it has a broad variety of nationalities. It also has incredible, incredible wealth and incredible poverty as well. So you probably only see the wealth on TV, but there are poor people there as well. And another fascinating thing about the UAE is it's made up of seven emirates, the United Arab Emirates. They're like states, but each state has a king, a ruler, and that ruler will be the ruler there until he dies or he's incapacitated, at which point the crown prince, usually a son, will take his place. And that is a fascinating thing, uh, a fascinating uh, aspect of living in that place. There are no elections 
we do not participate in government in any way, shape, or form. And that's very different, of course, than America, right? And it means that we never have election cycles where you, you, Americans, citizens of the United States, hear politicians give you promise after promise after promise, and you wonder, are they really going to keep their promise? And of course, that inspires lots of cynicism in us because we've seen leaders come and go and break their promises, fudge on what they said they were going to do. We don't have that in the UAE. Promises are a critical aspect of any society, really. Deep down, I think that many of us, when we think about the promises that undergird our society, whether they're politicians or the promises that we make and as friends with one another, or the promises that you made when you joined Midtown Baptist Church and you agreed to the covenant of this church. You were making promises to one another before the Lord. I think deep down, we have some cynicism in us because we recognize how prone we all are to break our promises. One of the most important parts of our society, one of the most important aspects of the fabric of society are marriages and families. And of course, marriage is one of those covenant agreements, a covenant promise. Joanne and I celebrated our 32nd wedding anniversary this week. Every wedding anniversary is uh, an anniversary of promises made. But the fact remains that even though marriage itself is decreasing in the West, perhaps because of some of that cynicism about just making promises, so people just aren't getting married as much. Even still, almost 50% of marriages still will end in divorce. It's a staggering statistic when you think about it. Those are 50% of marriage promises that are broken. It seems we're not very good at keeping promises. But there is one who always keeps his promise. And that's the Lord God. Just as Joshua said earlier, he never lies. He always keeps his promises. And that's what our text is about this morning in Genesis chapter 15. So if you would, open your Bible to Genesis 15. Genesis 15 is in the part of Genesis where we're looking at the life of Abram. He's not yet named Abraham. He's named Abram. Let me read Genesis 15, 1 through 21. Follow along with me. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a great, in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. 
And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all there, these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age." And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Oh, Heavenly Father, we need your Holy Spirit to illuminate your word for us. Lord, we know your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Oh, Lord, we pray that it would divide our hearts and show us what is right there and what is wrong there. We pray, Father, that you would reveal yourself to us through your word, perhaps in a similar way that you did to Abram in the episodes that we've just read. Oh, Lord, we depend on you in your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you were to summarize this passage or my sermon in a single sentence, this is what I would want you to take away this morning. Believe God for a great inheritance through his guaranteed promises. Believe God for a great inheritance through his guaranteed promises. Now, Abram was a man born into a family and a culture that worshipped idols. He was married to Sarai, who had not been able to bear children. The Lord had appeared to him several chapters before the one that we just read and told him to leave his father's household and go to the land of Canaan in the west. And there, God promised that he would make Abram into a great nation. He would bless Abram, and he would bless all the families of the earth through him. Amazing promises. Our passage today describes two important conversations that took place between the Lord and Abram on what seems like two separate occasions. I'll explain that a little bit later. But the author of Genesis has put them together for us because they fit together well. They're similar in that they deal with two pressing questions that Abram has for the Lord and how the Lord answers him. The first six verses 
cover that first conversation between God and Abram, and in it we hear God speaking primarily about the great inheritance that he has in store for Abram, specifically an inheritance in the form of descendants. So that's our first point this morning. Great inheritance. A great inheritance. Verses 1 through 6 is where we see that. Look back with me at verse 1. It's a really important verse. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Well, that first verse begins with the phrase, after these things. And these things, you're wondering to yourself, what are these things? Unless you read chapter 14, you wouldn't know. These things, to sum it up, are that Abram's nephew Lot had settled near the wicked city of Sodom. And then four powerful kings from the east had attacked Sodom and her allies and had routed them, taking Lot and many others captive. Abram heard about it. He rallied his private army of over 300 trained men and he went and defeated those four kings from the east and returned everyone to their homes there south in the promised land. Now that's the background of what had happened. In the aftermath of that battle and the rescue of all those people, the king of Sodom had offered for Abram to keep all of the property that he had taken in the battle. But Abram turned him down. He said, no, I don't want it. Saying that Abram had pledged to the Lord not to take anything from the king of Sodom, lest he one day claim that he, the king of Sodom, had made Abram rich rather than the Lord. He wanted God's fame, God's name to be known through anything good that happened in his life, any riches that came to him. He wanted God to get the credit. So he had turned down what the king of Sodom had offered him. Well, that's the background, and it's important to remember because God's first words to Abram are a command. He says, fear not. Why would God tell Abram, fear not? Well, it's pretty simple. God knew that Abram was afraid. He was afraid. He's turned down treasure from Sodom. He's made enemies of the four powerful kings from the east. He's drawn attention to himself as a powerful man now here in a land filled with other nations who are looking out for themselves and have not always been peaceful and friendly with their neighbors. Logically, Abram has reason to fear. But God says, fear not. Why? Because God makes promises. And he has made promises to Abram. I am your shield. I will protect you, he's saying. And your reward will be very great. Those promises that I gave you are sure and certain, Abram. Don't worry. You don't need what the king of Sodom was going to give you. God knows that Abram's worried about protection and he's worried about his future. And many of you may be struggling with fear right now as well. You lie in bed wondering if maybe you'll be the next one to get called into the manager's office and have to be clearing out your desk before lunchtime. Others of you maybe who are in school, taking some kind of courses, you're wondering whether or not you're going to pass that next test 
or what you'll do once you graduate? Will there be a job? Maybe for some of you, families counting on you getting that job. Some of us fear that that marriage proposal that we'd so love to have is maybe never going to come. Some of us are racked with just the fear of tragedy. Tragedy will happen to us. I mean, we turn on the news every morning or we go to our favorite news website every day and we see how much tragedy is happening all around us. And we wonder, when is it going to come into my life? What if my children become seriously ill? What if I get cancer? What if I'm one of the COVID death toll? What if my spouse isn't faithful to me? All of those things could happen to any one of us. Living in a world racked with sin means that every day there is a risk of pain and suffering and loss. And what do we have in the face of these possibilities that face us? We have God's promises. God's sure promises. God promised Abram protection. I am your shield. And he promised him a great inheritance. Your reward will be very great. And so, brothers and sisters, when you're gripped by fear, you must remember the promises of God. You must remember that God is with you. That God has promised to never leave you or forsake you, no matter what comes into your life. You must know God's promises. You must return to God's promises. You must refresh and rehearse those promises every single day, in fact. God says over and over in His Word, fear not. In Isaiah 41.10, He says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Jesus Himself said, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Fear can immobilize us. It can prevent you and I from being obedient to God, in fact. Fight your fear with the promises of God. Go to them every day. Now, God took the initiative to reassure Abram, but Abram has concerns. And so, in verses 2 and 3, he asks God a question about this promise of a great inheritance. What will you give me for I continue childless, he says. Now, God had promised to make him into a great nation, but how could that happen if his wife Sarah can't even have a single child? It's a good question. And as it stood, the heir to Abram's wealth was going to be a servant named Eleazar, who was from Damascus. Now, if you read that about Abram, about his concern, about his future, his heritage, and you think that since he lived 4,000 years ago and he's not like you, think again. He's struggling with fear. He's dealing with the pain and the disappointment of infertility. Some of you might be dealing with that maybe eventually we'll deal with that. Abraham experienced many of the things that you are experiencing. And he's depending on God. 
God's answer to Abram is no for now, but not forever. In verses 4 and 5, God promises that a servant will not inherit from Abram. No, your very own son shall be your heir, God says. And to further describe to Abram how great his inheritance will be, God takes him outside. Now, it must have been nighttime because God tells him to look up into the heavens and try and count the stars. If you can count them, that's how many descendants you're going to have. So shall your offspring be, God says to him. Late in 2019, uh, we gathered a group of about 15 members of our church and we drove down to the Saudi border. And down near the Saudi border is an area in the desert called the Empty Quarter. It's appropriately named. The only thing in the empty quarter are the largest dunes in the world, the largest sand dunes. And we had a number of four-wheel drive vehicles, and we spent the night down there in the empty quarter right on the Saudi border. It was amazing. Now, I've gone duning for 18 years in and around Dubai, but those dunes were spectacular. I've never seen anything like them. And so we pitched our tents and we spent the day duning and riding on four-wheelers and and then in the evening we climbed up to the top of these dunes and I mean they are just enormous they're scary actually if you're on a vehicle on top of them and of course as it got dark the desert is a perfect place to look up and see all those stars in the sky no light pollution it was just incredible I hope you get a chance one day to come and visit us maybe and see the stars in the midst of the desert. And you can't count them. There's too many of them. Even sophisticated telescopes can't count all the stars in the sky. And so scientists have to estimate how many they are. And I looked it up. It's a billion trillion, which sounds like a number that a little kid would come up with. Too many to count. That's what it means, right? All throughout the Bible, different parts of creation are used by God and God's word to illustrate and point to truths about God. And in this case, to the promises of God. Dust on the earth, stars in the sky, sparrows that God can keep track of, every single one of them, hairs on your head that God knows, down to the single hair. I encourage you to, as you walk through your life, don't forget to look around you in creation And hold your Bible in the other hand, always keeping an eye on God's word, but look in creation and see what it says about God. God speaks through creation. Creation communicates. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim his handiwork. And in this case, the skies were proclaiming how great God's promises were. Abraham didn't have any descendants yet, but God was still promising them. Even though Abram was about 80 years old at this point, Sarai was about 70, but they were promised. They were coming. Abram's response is one of the most amazing verses in the whole Old Testament. And of course, it was referenced in the New Testament passage that John read for us earlier in the service. Look again there at verse 6 in our passage. It says, and he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's, and Abram believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Now, many theologians 
would consider this one of the most important verses in the entire Old Testament. And there's a lot of verses in the Old Testament. God has restated his original promise of descendants to make Abram into a great nation, and Abram trusted that God would keep it. He believed God. But what's even more stunning is how God viewed Abram. God counted it to him as righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is the great doctrine of justification by faith alone in the promises of God here in the Old Testament. It's not just a New Testament idea. It's really in the Bible from the beginning to the end. We know that Abram had sin in his life, don't we? If you read any more of the rest of Genesis... He's like every other person who's descended from Adam and Eve, sinful, prone to disobey God. We've already seen him let his wife be taken into the household of Pharaoh. If you were to read chapter 12, the end of chapter 12, that was sin, that was wrong. And if you were to read chapter 16, he falters again in the next chapter. But God counts him righteous, considers him righteous despite his sin. Now, imagine for just a minute that you're going to take a test and you don't know the material and you take that test and you do not score well. You have errors all throughout your paper. But the professor tells you, you're going to graduate top of the class. I'm going to make it happen. Do you believe me? So you simply believe your professor's promise. Your exam comes back and it's got red ink spilled all over it, mistakes, errors, you've fallen short. But at the top of the paper, you have an A plus, 100. That's as if the red on those pages didn't count. It didn't make a difference because of what your professor said. What counted was that you believed the professor. And he counted it to you as a perfect score. There are only two ways for people to be in a right relationship with our holy God. Either you live a completely sinless life from beginning to end, or you believe God's promise to count you as sinless or righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the only two ways to be in a right relationship with him. You either earn it or it's gifted to you. Brothers and sisters, we've already failed the test. We've fallen short. Each and every one of us know that. We can't even live up to our own standards for ourselves, much less God's standards of holiness and purity. We must seek the gift of righteousness from God through faith in His promise. Abram's righteousness doesn't come because of his work for God but because of his trust in God. The promises given to Abram were actually the gospel proclaimed to that idol worshiper, Abram. Do you know that? Galatians 3.8 actually uses that word, gospel. It says, essentially, God announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. So for us, the gospel has been fully revealed then in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. 
and the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life for those who repent and believe the gospel, that is for us. That's the gospel announced to us. We will not be counted righteous without believing God's promises to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you believe the gospel? Are you trusting in God's promises demonstrated in the message about Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and all that he promises? Do you believe it? Are you leaning into it? Do you have faith in God's promises to us in the Savior? If you do, then you will put no confidence in your works. Your works can't make you right before God. Your good intentions are not enough. I remember when I was growing up, there was a popular evangelistic method called evangelism explosion. And it had kind of a set number of questions that uh, you were to ask a non-believer to walk them through and get to the point where you could explain the gospel. And one of those questions was, the first question really was, when you show up at the gates of heaven and God says, why should I let you in? How will you answer? Of course, if you think about that question, if you, anything else comes to your mind other than I have no right to enter. I have no right to come in except for what Jesus has done for me. If you can think of anything else, are there any excuses? Are there any works in your life that you're going to kind of roll out for God and explain to him why you deserve to go in? Then you don't understand the gospel. Jesus. Jesus is the only reason any of us will be able to walk through and stand in the presence of God, not fearful, but joyful. Brothers and sisters, step off that treadmill of trying to earn God's love and acceptance through your works. Just believe Him. Trust Him. Romans 3, 21 and 22 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Simply trust in God's promise to forgive and save you through Jesus Christ's sacrifice for you on the cross. We are justified. We are made right. We are counted righteous before God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And that's the way Abram was justified in the promises of God. He didn't know Jesus' name yet but he had the promises that would eventuate in Jesus. Abram believed God. He was walking in faith, sometimes weak, sometimes strong. So the first promise that we see in our passage here is of an heir, a son of his own that would lead to a multitude of descendants. And now God reaffirms his promise of land in these next verses. And God adds to the promise that he originally gave to him. He adds to him a rock-solid guarantee, a reason for Abram to trust him. So if the first six verses could be described with a great inheritance, verses 7 through 21 could said to be called guaranteed promises. A great inheritance and now guaranteed promises. In 7 through 21, 
we see God come to Abram again with a promise in the daytime. We know it must be daytime because verse 12 describes the sun going down. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Again, Abram has a question, just like in the conversation in verses 1 through 6. How am I to know that I will possess it? Now, it's interesting that God isn't angry with Abram for this question. Evidently, his question doesn't imply disbelief here. So we should take note that there is a way to ask God questions and still be keeping a posture of faith toward God. Ask your questions to God. But don't stop trusting him as you ask. We can question God, but not accuse God or make demands of God. Now, God commands Abram to bring three different animals that would have been in Abram's herds of livestock along with two birds. Abram either knew what to do or was instructed by God. It's not described to us here. But we know that he proceeded to cut the three larger animals in half, which is really strange. And to lay each of those halves on the ground facing each other, the birds that he he didn't cut in half, though they would have been killed as a sacrifice. Now, Imagine, just for a moment, what this scene is like. I mean, this is a bloody scene. There's blood everywhere. Animal carcasses are laid on the ground. I'm sure it smells. And now the sun goes down and Abram falls into a deep sleep. And verse 12 says, And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then God spoke to him again, telling him how he would come to possess the land. Know for certain, God says in verse 13. He's guaranteeing his promise to Abram. And God goes on to describe what's going to happen to those descendants. Actually, they're going to be afflicted for 400 years in a land that's not their own. God will then judge their oppressors and they will come out of that nation with many possessions. Abram's going to die at a good old age. Abram's descendants will return to this promised land where Abram stands now after four generations because the sin of the people in the land, the Amorites, hasn't reached its full measure yet. God knows how history will unfold for Abram and his descendants because he's in control of it. He's in control of your future too. He is causing his plan for you to be fulfilled as well. And like Abram's descendants, it might include affliction and suffering. But God is good, and his promise of a great inheritance is still certain, not just for Abram, but for you and I as well. God works in time frames that we don't understand in years and decades and centuries, even millennia, of course. He is firmly in control, and we must trust him no matter what. Now we get to verse 17, and we begin to see what God is doing here with Abram in this strange, bloody scene. Look there at verse 17 with me. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant. God was preparing a covenant-cutting ceremony for he and Abram. Oftentimes in the ancient Near East, two kings would make a covenant with one another 
by making promises to one another and then cutting sacrificial animals in half, laying them across from one another, and then walking together between the bloody carcasses. I don't know about you, but I don't oftentimes remember specific sermons that have been preached to me, and it may be that you don't remember this sermon a week or two or a month from now either. I trust God will use it in your heart nevertheless. But I do remember this one sermon when I was a university student. It's like clear as day to me. And the pastor was preaching on this passage, and he stopped and actually had some of us in the congregation lay out on the floor like we were the halves of the dead animals. I'm not going to do that. But by performing this act together, God and Abram were both saying in effect, or two kings if that were the case, if either one of us breaks the terms of the covenant, let him be cursed and let what has happened to these animals happen to him. Let his blood be shed if he breaks his promise. But here something different happens. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch are the only thing that pass through the pieces. What is that? And when we look, at the, look forward in the Bible to the book of Exodus, we see that Moses meets God in a burning bush on a mountain. And when the Israelites are rescued from Egypt, they travel back to that mountain and meet God there. And it's described like this in chapter 19, verse 18 of Exodus. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Smoke and fire on the mountain represented God's presence. God is the one who is here walking between the sacrificed animals. God is represented by the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch. The covenant is with Abram but it all falls on God to keep the promises. And we read the promises of the land then spelled out again and expanded this time in verses 18 through 21. In fact, it's not just a piece of property in the Middle East, it's the entire Middle East, from Egypt all the way over to Iraq. All that land was owned at that time by the ten nations listed there in verse 21. But one day it would all be owned by the nation that would come from Abram. One day. God is guaranteeing his promises to Abram and his descendants too. He's saying, if one of us breaks the covenant, I will pay the price. Now this isn't the last time in Scripture that God would cut a covenant with man and guarantee all the promises himself. Brothers and sisters, on the night Jesus was going to be betrayed, Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples and he broke the bread and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Torn body, spilled blood. Jesus was preparing to cut a covenant with his disciples. A new covenant. And the blood and the torn body that would guarantee his promise of forgiveness and everlasting life was not a sacrificial animal. No, it was his own body and his own blood. Because we've broken the covenant. We've not kept faith with God. 
we were sinners and rebels against him. And, and so God, who walked before Abram between those sacrificed animals all by himself, went to the cross to pay for our covenant-breaking sin all by himself. Oh, church, do you see the extravagant love of God demonstrated for Abram? Do you see the sacrifice that he's made for us on the cross? When you fear for your future and when you wonder if God loves you, when you tremble wondering how you'll fare when you stand before the judgment seat of the Lord God Almighty, remember that Jesus Christ cut the covenant with all who repent and believe in him. Remember when your great inheritance of everlasting life in the new heavens and the new earth were backed up by the shed blood of the Messiah. There's no greater inheritance you can gain and there's no guarantee for his promises more sure. None more sure than Jesus. Spurgeon said, oh, it is not my remembering God, it is God's remembering me, which is the ground of my safety. Not my laying hold of his covenant, by his co but his covenant's laying hold of me. Not my looking to Jesus, my looking to Jesus brings me joy and peace, but it is God's looking to Jesus which secures my salvation and that of all the elect. We shall remember the covenant and we shall do it through divine grace, but the hinge of our safety does not lay there. It is his remembering of us, not our remembering of him. Christian, I wonder, are you struggling, wondering about your salvation? Is it assured? Is it guaranteed? Will God keep his promise in the gospel? Oh, brothers and sisters, look at the cross. And if you are here and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you. You can enter into that covenant with God through Jesus Christ, even today, even this morning. Repent of your sin. Turn away from your rebellion and put your trust and faith in Jesus. He is waiting. He is ready. He is willing to make those promises to you. Abram was waiting to receive what was promised to him by God, and so are we. There was more in store for him, and there's more in store for us. Of course, that great number of descendants that God promised Abram would eventually become the Israelite nation. But there was even more. Because now, that number numbers far more than the Israelite nation ever did. It's numbered by all the souls of all the people throughout space and time through, who have repented of their sin and put their trust and faith in Jesus. All those saints who have gone before us and now dwell with him and are waiting on us to join them. God's promises only begin with forgiveness and righteousness. Brothers and sisters, that's really the doorway into all that God is promising to us. 4,000 years haven't changed what God promised, but it's also expanded as well in terms of the land. Romans 4, 13 says, For the promise to Abram and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Did you hear that? 
heir of the world. We are heirs of the world with Jesus. Jesus won it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he said, on the mountain. And we're with Jesus. God promised land and descendants to Abram. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise, an offspring from Abram's line who would inherit the land. And that land isn't just the Middle East now, it's the whole earth. And when Christ comes again, he will judge the nations, he will glorify us, his people, and he will remake the heavens and the earth where we will dwell with him forever and ever and ever. We will live with him face to face, his creatures with our creator. We have an infinitely great inheritance and those promises are guaranteed and sealed with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And it's ours simply by trusting in him. Let's pray to him now. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for all that you have done. Lord, nothing we could have done ourselves. We were lost. We had no hope. And you put people in our lives who shared those gospel promises, a a form, a new covenant form of that very same gospel that you proclaimed to Abram on that day and that night that we've just read about. Oh, praise you for these promises and praise you that you guarantee them by your own blood. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.